Thank you, worship team, for leading us into the presence of the Lord as we worship Him. Let the worship continue as we uh, open up our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If we rightly understand worship, we know that worship is not necessarily just our singing and our music. Worship is the very posture of our lives as we approach Him with humble hearts and desire to know more of Him, desire to seek Him and be pleasing to Him in obedience. So we will continue to worship in His Word as we open up the scripture to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Before we get into our sermon time today, I just wanted to give you a brief update. Uh, many of you have been praying for the Neves family. We really do appreciate the support that we feel um, as we go through this process of fostering Rosie. We had a big court date on Wednesday, so I wanted to give you an update on that. Uh, we met with the judge and the lawyers for um, Rosie's birth parents, and uh, we went through with the process of termination of parental rights. So after not having taken care of their uh, responsibilities uh, for the last several months, uh, the courts have deemed that that home is not a place that they want to send Rosie to. And uh, we can now officially start the process of adoption. So please continue to pray. That can sometimes be a very long process. Sometimes it can be short. It is, uh, again, a, a, an example of how we are not in control of our lives. The Lord will lead and, and guide us through and direct us as he sees fit, but we, uh, we do count on you all to be praying for us, and we, uh, we appreciate that. She is such a joy to us, and we know she's a joy to the church family, too, and we look forward to the day when we can uh, call her Rosie Neves. So as we have our Bibles open to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we're going to be finishing out the chapter today. This is not a long chapter, um, and we are going to be taking a look at some of the themes that we looked at the last two weeks, but they're going to be progressing through a bigger, greater theme that dominates the book of Ecclesiastes. Before we get into the scripture and read it together, I want to ask you a question that we can sort of mull around in our minds and we can contemplate together. What do you mean when you say that God is in control? And if you have not said that phrase, I'm sure that you have heard your brothers and sisters in Christ speak it out. What is meant when it is said that God is in control? How far does that go? How general or specific is that, that thought supposed to be? Do you mean to suggest when you say that God is in control, that God is simply in control of the specific set of circumstances that you seem to be going through at that moment? Do we have to take every circumstance on a case-by-case -case basis when we're thinking about the sovereign control of God? Does it mean that God in His control is only controlling that which matters? that which is important or that which is good for God to be in control of. That would, of course, imply that there are things that are not important to God and that God does not waste his time on those things. Is that how we should consider God's sovereignty? Or do you mean that God is in control of everything? That every single event that happens in space and time occurs under the watchful eye and the purposeful direction of the one who created all things. A truly sovereign God is an idea of immense proportions, one that we can hardly wrap our human brains around. But if we believe it, if we truly believe that God is in control, if we truly believe that nothing happens outside of this universe unless God ordains it or permits it, then that should change the way that we understand the entire world that we live in. By the way, if we honor the Bible as God's holy word, then this is a truth we must believe, amen? This is something we must embrace. Let me share some scriptures with you that displays the sovereignty of God. 
Daniel 4, verse 35, says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can, say to him, can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? God is not trying to make man seem completely unimportant in this passage of Scripture. He's comparing the power and the will of man with the perfect power and the excellent will of himself. So in comparison to his might and his power, no one can oppose him. The inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. They cannot resist. Look at Isaiah 46. We see in verses 8 through 10 another testimony to the sovereignty of God. Remember this and stand firm, Isaiah writes. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. That verse from Isaiah there should resonate with us as we have just recently been looking back again on a little passage of Scripture from chapter 3, a chapter that is by and large about the sovereignty of God. You remember when we read that God has put eternity in our hearts? But then what does he say after that? Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. And here Isaiah reminds us that God himself declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, he declares things that are not even done yet. Remember that as we go on and read these verses today in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. This God that we are worshiping is a God who knows every single detail. Nothing escapes his glance. And then, of course, the apostle Paul is in concert with this theology. In Romans 8, 28, although this is a verse that we don't always associate with sovereignty, it is right there in that doctrine. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And we often say that to one another when we're struggling through a hardship, when we're going through a time that tests us, that wears us out. But that scripture would mean nothing if God were not a sovereign God, if He were not in control of all things. Because how could God work all things to the good if there are things outside of the reach of His power and authority? How can we count on Him to get us through if not everything is in His command and control? So as you can see, the sovereignty of God in all things is not a mere theology of men. This is what the Lord proclaims about Himself in His very Word. Now it has been quite a while since we were working through chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. And, and, and we have to stretch things out sometime in order to get the full meaning of them. But if you're just reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3 and chapter 6 are not far apart. So that concept of God's sovereignty, where it talks about how there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. And then God is described verse after verse as being in control of all aspects of reality. That is not far removed from, verse, or from the verses we're going to be studying today. So the sovereignty of God should still be in our minds. It should be fresh in our hearts as we think about what the Solomon, the preacher, wants to teach us in verses 10 through 12. So let's read that together and then trust the Lord to help us to understand it. Whatever has come to be has already been named. 
And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he is. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The passage we are studying today begins with a kind of confession from the preacher. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, we call him Koholeth, has already considered two important subjects in the course of this chapter. He has talked about the inevitability of death. And so we spoke two weeks ago about how we can be prepared to die well. How we can put our sights on the Holy One of of, of heaven and earth to guide us through that transition out of this world into the next if we have faith in Jesus Christ. We've also discussed in this chapter just last week the appetite of man. And how if we are trying to fulfill that appetite detached from God, apart from His rule in our lives, we will be continually dissatisfied. We will constantly hunger for something better, something more, something more attractive. That constant need for more will leave us completely unfulfilled if we are not seeking our fill in the Lord God Himself. A glaring roadblock to man's attempts to satisfy himself is the theological concept that we began with today. This idea of God's sovereignty. And it is the sovereignty of God that the preacher is contemplating when he opens this passage with a pair of broad statements. The first one is this. What has come to be has already been named by God. What has come to be has already been named by God. Now what that means is that God has numbered and named each day long before that day ever truly occurred. So while man has to take life as it comes to him, man has to do his best to roll with the punches. He's gaining new data each new day as life rolls on, as it unfolds before him. It is not so for God. God the Father knows all that's going to happen before it does, so time reveals nothing to him. All of the data that Solomon has collected so far from his attempts to seek out satisfaction and contentment apart from God have pointed to this unavoidable fact that God has ordained everything according to his own perfect will. So God knows when we will be born. We didn't ask to be born, it just happened to us, but God was aware of when it would happen and who it would happen to, and under what circumstances, and what point in history, God knew it all. God already knows the day that He has determined for us to leave this place. The amount of breaths you will take from now until the time you die is numbered in God's mind. He knows it. The trials and the tribulations that we have to endure are carefully chosen by Him as experiences that will shape us, that will urge us to trust in God's provision. It is through these hardships, it is through these proofs to us that we are weak and that we need the Lord God, that He draws us near to Himself and that He puts on display His full glory and His goodness to us. It is God who determines our station in life. We have learned that it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, God has brought you where you are. Your station may change over the course of your existence here on earth, but wherever you happen to be at any given moment, You are to seek the Lord God and trust Him where you're at. The testimony of God's Word even declares that our salvation does not happen independently of His will and His plan. 
Though we cannot see what is to come, God is fully aware of it because it is all in the outflowing of His will and His plan for creation. God has numbered those whom He will save and He will not return until every one of them is redeemed. Not only did the sovereign God that we are speaking about this morning know what will happen to man, the second broad statement He makes is that God already knows the essential essence of what man is. Ecclesiastes has described to us the various ways that man struggles to figure out his own purpose, his own identity. In contrast to that, God is not perplexed at all. He doesn't wonder what man is. He knows intimately what what man is. He knows from the beginning to the end what man is supposed to do. It's very clear to him. God sees man for what he is. And these are some of the things that he declares to us about man as he tries to help us understand who we are through the counsel of his word. Man is created by God. God knows that man is not eternal like him because God himself brought us into existence. We owe our being to him. Man is created by God. Man is also created in the image of God. God knows that we have been designed for a purpose, and he understands what that purpose is. We are to reflect the goodness and grace of God. We are to trust in him in such a way that the rest of creation will see God at work through our representation of God. God knows that man refuses to act in the image of God. Though he was made in that image, God knows that man is rebellious by nature, thanks to Adam. Our rebellious hearts want to cast God aside They want to take control of our own lives, and so it follows that man's rebellion has earned him the wrath of God. These are things that God knows of us. These are things that we can know of ourselves if we will listen to the sovereign God. By opposing the one who gives us life, we deserve to lose the life that he so generously provided for us. And finally, man cannot redeem himself from the debt that he owes to God. This is the state of man. And there are many in the world who ignore this sovereign God, who do not listen to his instruction, and they have no idea that this is the state of man. They have determined for themselves, I'm going to figure out man on my own. I'm going to think through this, I'm going to reason through this, I'm going to build a philosophy of what man is, and they have completely disregarded the truths that God brings to us through his word. All of these truths about man point to a cosmic clash of forces between the will of God and the will of man who desires to oppose him. Before God created a single atom, he had a plan and a person, a purpose for what he would make. And yet man refuses to play his part in that plan because he would rather write his own future for himself. So church, the dissatisfaction that we experience in life all boils down to this great spiritual impasse, this great conflict between creator and created thing. Man doesn't want what God wants, at least not naturally. And we can't both get what we want. Man's will will be done or God's will will be done. The inevitable collision of the two wills can only result in one thing. Verse 10 reminds us of this. He, meaning man, is not able to dispute with one who is stronger than he. Have you ever watched a video of a car stalled on a set of railroad tracks? And you know, there's a lot of things that 
the internet has brought to us in this day and age. And one of the things that we get to see often are crazy things that you'd never have been able to see before because everyone's got a video camera in their pocket and everyone's got a, a, an internet hub where they can download or upload videos. So perhaps you've seen one of these videos where there's a car that stalls and then you hear in the distance of that video that distinct siren wail of the whistle, the steam whistle of a locomotive engine. And then you begin to see the smoke billowing out of the stack of that train as it charges closer and closer to that vehicle. Unless the car yields, unless it somehow gets out of the way of the train that's barreling down upon it, there will be a great collision, one that will produce significant destruction and harm, but not to the train. Two forces in that scenario are not equally matched at all, are they? In a collision of car and train, there is an inevitable outcome. The train wins every single time. The mind of man may try its best to talk its way out of this conundrum, but in reality, if you are opposed to God, you are the car on the tracks. And the train is coming because God's will cannot be stopped. It cannot be slowed or stifled. It will never be redirected. So man tries to talk his way out of this scenario. Because of our stubbornness, we want to be as God is. But as Solomon bluntly puts it in verse 11, the more words that man uses in an attempt to explain away this impasse, in an attempt to justify his freedom from God, the more life spirals into vanity. The harder one tries to solve the riddle apart from God, the more complicated the riddle becomes. I remember when we, we installed this playground that's out here that our kids play on. It was a wonderful gift from a friend who had rescued all the pieces from a, a city project where they were, they were changing out to new stuff. And so he got this playground. He donated it to our church. And we installed it with all church labor. We all just worked together as a team. And men and women got out there with shovels and hole, post hole diggers and wheelbarrows. And we moved all the stuff out of the way. We dug the holes. And I remember that part of our property is backfill. Uh, it was built up over time by, um, by debris and, and dirt that came off of other construction sites. And so as we were trying to dig some of the pulse holes that had to be exactly the, the right amount of distance apart, every once in a while you'd hit something hard. And you'd hope that it wasn't anything big. But then a couple of times as we dug down into the hole, this little rock that appeared to be a stone, the more you dug away, the more you realized it wasn't a stone. It was a boulder. And it was going to take a lot more effort to move that thing than you ever anticipated. And human philosophy can be like that sometimes. We think we've got a way to figure out an existence independent from God, but the more we actually think through it, the more we unveil, the more complications and problems we find with our autonomy. The farther away we try to get from God, the, the less happy we are, the less content we, we, can ex, we can be, and the more we experience hurt and pain and disappointment in this life. Who knows what is good for a man, asks Koholeth, the preacher. He doesn't even bother to answer the question here, for the answer should be plain to us, just as it was when the preacher asked a very similar question back in chapter 3, in verse 21. Solomon wrote, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He was confessing man's ignorance of what happens after this life. Sure, people can postulate, they can think about it and come up with theories and ideas, 
But apart from God revealing the truth, man is doing nothing more than guessing. The mysteries of our final state are unsolvable. That is, for someone who is under the sun. We, by ourselves, cannot crack the code. Not only does man not have a solid understanding of what to come, according to chapter 3, verse 21, he doesn't even have a firm grasp on what is best for him in the here and now, says chapter 6, verse 12. His mortality is insurmountable. His finite mind is not capable of unraveling the mystery. Who knows what is good, asks Solomon. Who can tell us what happens to a man after his time in this world is all used up? The answers to these questions can only be found in the generator of life, God himself. And by his revealed word, he has shown us what is good in life. But in order for the information that is contained in this wonderful volume to be of any good use to us, we have to first embrace the fact that the answer cannot come from our finite mind. It has to come from outside of ourselves. It has to come from the mind of God. In verse 12, Koholeth reminds us of the brevity of our time on earth as he describes how life passes like a shadow, a thing that appears to be real but has no true substance of its own. Like vapor, the vanity that we've been talking about is translated literally from the Hebrew as vapor. Like vapor, a shadow appears to be more than it is, but it's actually less than vapor because there's not even moisture there. It's, it's simply the brief impression of a real thing. That's how, how fleeting life is to man. Consider Psalm 39.10, which says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths." And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Salah. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Who apart from God can foretell the future? What is going to come in the days that are ahead of us? We can neither understand nor change the world with our philosophizing, with our speculation, with our passions, with our words, with our thoughts. The will of the Lord all the, all the while continues to move forward. And so the question today that we come to is this. Considering that God is sovereign and His will will be done, are we going to fight God's will with all of our might and be exhausted unto death by opposing a force that cannot be overcome? Or will we embrace the will of the Lord and see it carry us where we need to be? Would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is a perfect complement to the passage that we're studying today. We've been speaking of God's sovereign will as this immovable force, but it's not a force that's simply bent on destruction. This psalm of praise prophetically points forward to the crown jewel of God's will. Jesus, the anointed one, sent of God to accomplish what man apart from God could never accomplish on his own. So as we read through the psalm, let's see how it describes a picture of what Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 12 is confessing to us. Starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed 
saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's stop there for a moment. Verses 1 through 3 of the psalm describe a great opposition that builds against the Lord God. The language here describes nations and countries opposing the Lord. But do not make the mistake of thinking that it only applies to situations like outright war or one nation warring against the sovereign nation of Israel. There are minor skirmishes in the hearts of every man where we wage war against God and refuse to embrace His will for us, where we see His word proclaiming to us plainly what we should or should not do, and yet we decide for ourselves to walk against what God has called us to do. Why does man do this? Why does he rage against this God who is so mighty? Because the sovereignty of the Lord is seen as a limiting factor, a rope of sorts that binds man from accomplishing his own will. If only God were not determining and naming and ordaining, then life might be what I desire it to be, says the rebellious heart of man. And so this opposition seeks to break free from the sovereignty of the Lord God. This opposition desires to be sovereign over itself. Now to the Hebrew people who originally sung this song in the times of David and beyond, the nations which raged were likely understood in the minds of those singing the songs as the people around Israel who opposed God's plan to give the Holy Land to his Israelites. Their plots were to foil Israel's blessing. Their opposition to God's anointed was likely understood as their opposition to King David himself or whatever king God had allowed to be on the throne at that time. But as the psalm progresses, as we read more of it, we begin to see the clear messianic references that point forward and expand the scope of this psalm to cover not only the Moabites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites who were displaced when God gave Israel the Holy Land, but now they, they cover any and every force that would stand opposed to the will of God himself. So in the second section of verses here in Psalm 2, in verses 4 through 9, we read of God's response to the resistance of the first three verses. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." It does not matter, friends, how much force man opposes God with. It doesn't matter how much passion they rage with against the Lord God. It doesn't matter how much they scheme and plot and devise. God looks at that force that is opposing him, and it is like a joke to him. There is nothing that can stand against the power of the Lord God Almighty. He is not threatened by any kind of opposition. He knows that there is no way that man can truly oppose him. God will put upon the throne the only one who is worthy of bearing the title Lord, that is Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. The Father will give to the Son all the nations as His heritage. And there is nothing that can be done to delay or oppose this plan of God. 
That is why the raging of the nations is done in vain. There is no force that can oppose the Lord God Almighty. In verses 10 through 12, we are given a lesson that we are to take away from this reality. God isn't just saying this because he likes to mock those who oppose him. God wants us to learn from this example so we will not be numbered among those who would foolishly try to oppose his plan, who would foolishly park the car of our lives on the railroad tracks and wait for the locomotive to arrive. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The heart that will not yield to God is subject to his rightful judgment. The stubborn heart of some men will insist, I don't want God's freedom if I have to get it like that, if I have to bow myself before him to receive it, if I have to trust in God, then I'd rather be on my own. I don't want what he has to give to me. But any who stands in the way of God's will inevitably perishes. As we see in the conclusion of the psalm, there is, however, an alternative. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see the great contrast here. We're not just trying to show you a God who's just going to maniacally destroy all things that lay in his path. God has a plan and a will. And he doesn't want you outside of that will. He wants to preserve you within his will. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So if you don't know this God of goodness yet, I urge you, lay down your arms. Surrender to the Lord. For his desire is to redeem and his grace can transform you from enemy into ally. If you have been battling with God, I beg of you, you are fighting a battle that you cannot win. You will not overcome this God. There is no way that he will allow you to displace him. You're not going to ever take his throne. You will never disprove the truth that he declares among the heavens. You cannot even exist apart from him. So surrender your will to God who only wants to do you good. Some of you who are history fans might know a little bit about what happened in uh, southern parts of the United States. In October of 1835 to April of 1836, at that point, Texas was a, basically a state of the nation of Mexico. But there were a lot of things changing in the Mexican government. Mexico had started off as sort of an assembly of states, sort of like we were. But after finding many hindrances to the, the nation moving forward, they decided they wanted to take away the autonomy of the states and centralize the power of Mexico in one central government. Some of the states did not like this concept. Texas was one who opposed it, particularly since there was a large contingent of people who had settled in Texas who came from the United States, which was not yet as big as it is today. But they were used to this idea of sovereignty within the state and not within the greater nation. They were used to this idea of having a certain degree of freedom to be able to govern and, and represent themselves. And so they began to speak out against the Mexican government. The Mexican government did not like this. 
And so we begin to see a Texas revolution. October 1835 to April 1836, um, Texans formed a military and threatened to revolt, but they were ill-trained, they were ill-prepared for the force of the Mexican army. Early battles were very lopsided, and the general of the Mexican army, President General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, was a ruthless man. He had a method of dispelling rebellion. When he would overtake an army of rebels, anyone who surrendered would be immediately put to death in public so that others would see there would be no mercy from his hand. One such lopsided battle began in the early hours of March 6th in 1836 at an outpost called the Alamo. Here a garrison of roughly 250 to 300 Texian soldiers were laid siege by the Mexican army. When a small group of defecting soldiers surrendered outside of the fort, they were immediately lined up and executed by gunfire. The remaining soldiers in the fort determined at seeing this to dig in and to fight, hoping that perhaps if they held out long enough, reinforcements would eventually come. If you know the story, you know that they never did. Somewhere around 250 Texian troops fought bravely. The Mexican force of 1,500 soldiers lost roughly half their men in the battle. But eventually, the Texian troops were overcome and all were executed, minus a small handful who escaped to be able to tell the tale. Word of the tragic yet valiant battle of the Alamo sparked a fervor among the Texian people. And there was a great number of new enlistments as a result of the stories of the Alamo and how strong the men fought during that, that battle. And that new enlistment, that new wave of fresh soldiers was enough to turn the tide of the battle, which eventually resulted in Texas breaking free from Mexico. Some years later, it would become uh, another state of the United States of America. Now the stand that those 250 or so Texians took against a much larger army became a symbol of sorts. A stubborn refusal to give up was on display in the lives of those soldiers. That tenacity is so often exalted as a virtue. And surely the will to endure is a virtue if you're on the right side. But to stand stubbornly against truth and love, to dig in your heels and to reject the forces of good is a futility of eternal consequence. Here is the great irony of our resistance to God, this natural rebelliousness that we display against Him. God is not evil. He is not trying to steal your joy and subject you to eternal humiliation. He is a giver of life, not a destroyer of hope. If you were to fight against God with all your might, and let's just imagine for a moment that you could oppose Him and you could win and break free from God, from the cords that were spoken of in Psalm 2 that bind us to His will, it would be the greatest harm you could possibly inflict upon yourself. You would have broken free, but from what? From pure love. You would have cast away truth and righteousness, leaving only darkness and moral corruption. You would have doomed yourself to wander without purpose or answers, constantly floating through an existence you are not in control over, ever trying to satisfy your appetite by worshiping lesser things and ever finding yourself let down by the grim reality that nothing can compare to the one that you turned your back on. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is systematically tearing down every stronghold that stands against the perfect will 
of God. We cannot trust our wisdom to give us satisfaction. He has proved that it is not enough. We cannot accept that our power and prestige in this world will be enough to fulfill us or give us purpose. It is not enough. The the great wealth and riches that we amass, are they enough? No, they are not. Solomon has proved to us that they they are empty in the end. His thorough examination of the situation is proving that any and every struggle against God is an act of defiance that will only end in frustration rather than fulfillment. And when every alternative path is proved futile, only one path will remain. And that path is faith in the Lord God. I pray that everyone in this room will take that path. Would you please bow with me in a word of prayer as we thank God for what he has taught us today. Lord, you are holy and good. And we are humbled to come before you right now, knowing that your will is unopposable what you have determined ahead of time, the way that you have named the days and numbered them according to your will, this is all going to unfold. We confess that today. Lord, we also confess our stubbornness before you, that there are days when you have clearly told us what we are to do or not do. You have clearly told us what we are to love, what we are to think and embrace, and yet, Father, we struggle and strive and think that possibly we can make a way for ourselves. But, Lord, the Scripture makes the picture clear. We can do nothing apart from you. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to embrace this idea of surrender. That it would not be something that you have to force us to do, Lord, but that we would willingly and greatly, gratefully come to you and thank you for giving us respite. Though we have all earned your wrath, Lord God, let us see the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ, that in his suffering, in his punishment, that was so undeserved, our sins can be laid to rest and washed away forever. May your will be done in our lives, Lord God. Even if it doesn't match what we desire, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, may we enjoy every minute of your sovereign rule over our lives. We pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.